where we left off. You recall with was the uh, one of the approximately six billion egos inhabiting the planet, the oral surgeon who uh, learned a lot from being assigned to cleaning toilets. There's more to go with this poor gentleman, but not just yet. Why, why emphasize and even use terms like daily life in the midst of a retreat? Uh, we're away from daily life. We've come here to get away from daily life. And now we're being reminded that there's no getting away from it. Wherever you go, there's just life. And it's a, a phrase, a word, that the real world is there and what we do here is, I don't know what, what kind of world. And what we're trying to suggest is uh, to have a frame of reference where whatever we do, wherever that is, with whomever we're doing it, is just perfect. That's the perfect place to practice. That is practice. Those, those provide us with the perfect materials to practice with. Um, <clears throat> okay, why? That's usually, daily life issues are usually taken up at the end of a retreat. Those of you who are new wouldn't know this. The last day of the retreat is typically we talk about daily life, bringing the practice home, and integrating what we've been doing here with what comes next. Um, there is a reason behind it. What I've uh, seen over the years, uh, starting many years ago, is that um, it's quite possible to become fixated on the retreat model, and as beautiful as it is, uh, to set that off over and above and divorce it from the rest of your life, which may, for most of us, be approximately 99% of our life. And I remember uh, in the early days of IMS, uh, we would come for three-month retreats. This was in the first few years. And it was as if we would live for the three-month retreat and start wearing it like combat ribbons. You know, uh, three-month retreat, 1972. Uh, and we go home in order to make money to go come back to the next three-month retreat. In the meantime, nine months went by where we were talking about the next uh, three-month retreat and the one we just finished. And that's real life ticking off. Uh, the main thing I discovered is that it doesn't work for those of us who live in the world, finally. Um, so let me give you a, a metaphor. One of my strong interest is uh, natural healing, especially medical herbalism, herbal medicine. And in that world, there's a, a division of people who are called whole plant herbalists and those who are more following the pharmaceutical model. The whole plant herbalists uh, are of the persuasion that the whole plant needs to be used for healing and even though we don't understand or know what most of the plant is, we've isolated, let's say, 
that part of the plant in the ginkgo plant that seems to affect the brain in a very good way. So let's isolate that, intensify it, and deliver it. That's, that's more the pharmaceutical model. And there's no question that something happens. It's not a waste of time. The whole plant approach is understanding that there's an intelligence, a wisdom in nature, and that even if we don't understand it, we don't have scientific uh, concepts for it all, we can't identify all that's going on in it, uh, it turns out that the whole plant may turn out to be more effective, and there may even be some problems when we isolate what we call the chief factor, healing factor, and intensify that. Um, so <clears throat> what I'm uh, pointing towards is a practice for whole people. That is, we're not just people who sit on a cushion or do walking. Some people are. In other words, we need a non-monastic model. Because most of us, uh, everyone here, you all look like, I don't know, regular folks. Uh, perhaps you have jobs. If you're out of a job, you'd like to have one. Um, perhaps you're in a relationship. If not, you'd like to be in one, have children, etc. Go to school, work. Um, and what I saw happen is that uh, the sitting, in particular, and especially intensive practice where you do a lot of sitting, uh, that came to stand for the whole practice. And we would all talk about daily life is practice. Everyone says it. And I started to see that it, it borders on being a giant cliché, because um, Somehow we lack conviction that all the things that make up our life, the messiness of it, the tears, the going to work, the coming back from work, the changing of diapers, uh, the getting of degrees, whatever it is, could that really be as important a spiritual practice as sitting at a special center? Um, yes. But then we run into this problem. It came up in a few of the groups. People, one person, a couple of people, I'm putting it together, um, somehow in some way it downgrades sitting and retreats. It's sort of, if it's all the same, then that makes retreats which were special. And Michael, I think, uh, hit home last night when he said, a retreat is what it is. It isn't exactly what you thought it was. It never will be. It's a bunch of people sitting quietly doing what we're doing. And when we call it a retreat, somehow it's an idealization. Uh, so they were saying, well, you're taking the special quality away from that. I'm not. Uh, but it's a very tricky thing. Actually, what I'd like to do is not downgrade intensive practice or sitting, but upgrade life. So that finally it's life that we are really looking at. Because that's what we spent. That's to me, it's just so obvious that I, I run out of I don't have words for it. Uh, this is what our life is made up of. Our life. Not only that, this is, did this ever occur to you, that you're going to have to live with your mind for the rest of your days? <laughs> this is who you're going to be spending your time with. No matter what else happens. That's who you're. So I think it's important that we do something there. There's a lot of suffering in life. Often it brings us to meditation. 
and it's one of the best motors, maybe the best, because it gives us some real energy to do something about it. Um, but what can happen is, because that's the field where we got hurt, so-called world, uh, in relationship especially, perhaps in work, both, um, we come here to get away from that. And what is being suggested is, if we can uh, look at retreat life as, as life, as a whole, it includes everything that goes on in Cambridge or Chicago or wherever you're from. Everything. We dress, we eat. Uh, you might say, well, but there's no relationship going on here. That's baloney. There's no talking going on here. But, for example, the Koreans, Koreans then, they have a, a nice little saying, if you want to peel a, a, whole, a whole bucket of potatoes, you can peel one each individually, or you can put them in a big basket and shake them, and they all rub up against each other, and they peel themselves. Okay. Now, the Sangha is very supportive, and uh, my hope is that you are drawing support from us all practicing together, doing our yogi job together, serving and practicing. And everyone here is doing it. We're all, everyone's a yogi here, as far as I can tell. So even if somebody rubs you the wrong way, for example, if somebody's making certain sounds in the hall that you can't stand, uh, wonderful. Uh, there was a, a man named Gurdjieff, a, a Russian philosopher, and he had a, a center outside of Paris, and there was one person who everyone hated. He kind of drove everyone crazy, and finally he was so isolated that he left, because he, he just was unwanted in the community. Gurdjieff ran after him and paid him to come back, <laughs> because he was pushing everyone's button, and that gave them a chance to get, it's an opportunity to get free. So that's how the p potatoes peel each, we peel each other. But only if that's what you're here for. If you want to be right and solidify around a judgment about someone, okay, you are right. You should all be very quiet here in the hall. But if you see what it, the effect on you, and if you can work with it, then that starts to, it, it helps you come to a certain freedom that isn't dependent so much on conditions. We have to have the perfect conditions or we're not happy. The whole point of practice is we're working internally so that wherever we land, we land on our feet. In Japan, they have a little doll for children called a dharana. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing Daruma. It's bodhidharma, a little doll, and it's heavily weighted with lead in the back. And you push it over and it always comes back up again in a seated posture. Push it over and it comes back up no matter what you do. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Um, you get my drift? Uh, so if we can, and it's, and it's not to take you away from the sitting. Now, my own view of intensive practice, it's precious. I'm not encouraging us all to pay attention as to how we dress, how we eat, uh, any reactions we might have throughout the day, because I think sitting is a waste of time. I, it's one of the great discoveries of my life. I love to sit, and I love retreats. So it's special, but it isn't special. But it's special, but it isn't special. It's, the problem with it is it is special in that it's a unique arrangement where we so dramatically simplify life uh, that it, 
enhances your ability to really get to know yourself and to let go a lot. And doing it in a group context where we're all doing it together can be very, very positive. The problem is when we identify with it, attached to it, we um, set up house. Actually, in anything, the point of practice is to have a non-abiding mind. So we can get stuck in that model and set it up over and above everything else. And you can get so good at sitting, this is mo uh, more dangerous for those of you who are good at sitting. Love it, right? It's the only time I'm happy. Ah, good, <laughs> good feeling. And for those of you who are new, you might think that that's impossible. That seems so, <laughs> yeah. It's not true. It's not true. Eventually, you will learn how to be aware of the breathing. And it's a beautiful, simple, natural way to get calm rather easily and to feel joy rather easily. Okay, uh, maybe I'm deluded, but the only way you can find out is by doing it. Okay. Um, it's, so it's not to undercut the value of sitting, which is special and unique. It's when we set up house there and set it up over and above everything else, divorce it from the rest of our life. Set up house, you not only buy the house, cash, no mortgage, you furnish it, you move in, everything. And uh, it's called attachment. And if you get attached to this form, and if, if without intending to, it's set up over and above what happens when we leave here, we become non-hospitalizable schizophrenics. <laughs> In other words, we have certain uh, contexts within which ha happiness is much more available. And smaller ones, we go home and we have our little area or little room where we sit. But then the rest of life awaits us. We need a lay practice that's authentic, genuine, and robust. Otherwise, we just become shadows of the monastic path. A lot of the teachings that are great for monastics are not quite so good for us. And you don't have to agree with this, it's just one person's view. Uh, that we need a practice that is appropriate for the way we actually live. Not the way monks lived and nuns lived 2,600 years ago. Even though the general teachings have nothing to do with any identity or role. They're universal, that's why it's so beautiful. But nonetheless, there's a lot that is specific uh, that may not be so helpful for us. And what, how do you, what is a, a good lay practice? I would say we're in the process of discovering it. Because for quite a while, um, lay people didn't, for the most part, there are always exceptions, lay people were not the serious practitioners. Monks and nuns were, and it was really mainly monks. And the lay people's job was support the monks, make sure that there was enough food and medical supplies and so forth, and to get merit that way, and to receive teaching back. It was a, and it's still going on, a nice exchange. But everything is different here. There's a lot of energy in lay circles. There's enough leisure time. Uh, it's not a huge number of people queuing up to become monks or nuns. The ones who are, great. You have a, a wonderful tradition of certain 
this, the, the bulk of the practice is the same. It's awareness is awareness. But there's a lot around it, and attitudes especially. So that's why it's an attempt to uh, create a practice that serves us here. Now, it's not to discredit sitting, not in the least. Uh, and it's not that it in any way detracts from the sitting here. Because you are eating. You are, uh, you do have a yogi job, etc. Why not uh, take that and develop it fully? Now, my experience, uh, this is, you'll see that there's, there's a lot behind why I feel strongly about this. At the teacher level, I know a lot of teachers, my friends, colleagues, and I know a few, of course no names, um, who are highly advanced, tremendously developed. We've done retreats together. We've shared what we've learned on retreats. I know them for 20, 25, and 30 years, who have made a total mess in their lives. These are people who have even titles. They're not necessarily in Vipassana. And have hurt women, have left a, a path of uh, really badly damaged women. In other words, in one Zen approach, the koan approach, there are people who have solved all their koans except one, the, the woman koan. Maybe two, the money koan. <laughs> and then they come to this country, and lo and behold, everything's available. And the koan, it didn't prepare them for that. But I'm talking about Western teachers. Uh, and I've talked to a few of them, one in particular, who I, who's a good old and dear friend, who really left quite a big mess of suffering, and then uh, tried to understand it. And I tried to understand it with him. We finally concluded, how is it that somebody so devoted to practice uh, done endless numbers of long retreats, uh, work with some of the best teachers. How is it that you could, uh, your, your ethical uh, level could be so uh, damaged that it's worse than the average person walking down the street? Uh, how could that be? And what we came up with, there it was a real lack of conviction that the art of living, the act of living, can reveal as can produce, can yield as much wisdom and compassion and liberation as actually formal practice. We just, there wasn't that same conviction. Of course not. You don't see the Buddha vacuuming. <laughs> you don't see the Buddha making love. You don't see the Buddha taking children to school. Uh, and it's a wonderful uh, a wonderful uh, image, some of the really beautiful Buddhas. And so we take refuge in the Buddha. And here it gets into very, very deep teaching, in my opinion. Um, what is the real refuge? Uh, do you, uh, those of you who are new may not know this. That is, if you should ever want to become uh, a Buddhist, uh, one way is you take, ref you take the three refuges, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, and you take the precepts. Uh, refuge is supposed to be a safe place, right? It's a place where you can be safe. That's my understanding of it. I even looked it up in a dictionary. Okay. Um, do you think refuge in that statue is going to keep you safe? I don't think so. Uh, now, you may, there, there are people who believe that and pray to the statue and tears stream down their cheeks. I would never dream of interfering with that. But in a profound way, 
the value of the statue is rather limited. If you use it to kind of develop your heart, okay, that's, I wouldn't say that's a waste of time. Or the historical Buddha, if we're taking refuge in the Buddha, he lived 2,600 years ago. Where is he to help us out now? He's been dead a long time. He was a person. He made that clear. And what, so what is the refuge? It turns out that the refuge is our own mind. In fact, there's only the, the, the true refuge. And now we connect up with self-knowing, if, if you recall. The true refuge, uh, the only place that is invulnerable, is, in, is already here for each one of us. That's why people go through all this demanding stuff and sit in caves and forests and come to IMS and all the rest of it. Uh, it's worth it. Uh, but is it hard work? Yes, it is. It can also be joyful work. Uh, but for a while, you may, not, you may not see any evidence as to why you're doing it, especially those of you who are new. Um, let me try to clarify it. If you recall, I was saying uh, self-knowing is the essence of what the Buddha is talking about. You have to know your own mind. If you don't know, understand your, the way your mind works, you can read everything the Buddha ever said. You won't really understand what he's talking about. Your head will be filled up with somebody else's words. And there'll be a certain kind of indirect wisdom. It may guide your living in a way that's more constructive and useful, but it'll be limited. It turns out, so at first, self-knowing, let's go back, to, let's go to this oral surgeon. If you recall where we left off, the, uh, he, uh, becoming like a soap opera. <laughs> <laughs> he refused to take the job uh, cleaning the toilets on a retreat here. Uh, it was insisted that he, that he do it, he did it, and he learned a tremendous amount about why he, he, uh, he went into oral surgery in the first place, uh, why he was so rigidly attached to it, why he refused. It was painful for him to his credit. He learned a lot. He clarified his psychological state a great deal. And then he went home. Now, I don't know what's happened to him. Maybe the whole experience finished him off. <laughs> I've never seen him since, so. <laughs> I don't want to take too much credit for that. <laughs> uh, so, but let's imaginatively, uh, if he had continued to work, self-knowing is a verb, if you recall. It's uh, in the active present. It's you're paying attention to what life is, and it's not only learned on the cushion. Cushion's a great place to learn about yourself, but so is living, if you're willing to pay attention. Because life is constantly stimulating us, pushing buttons, as we say. And if you're willing to learn from that, uh, the lessons are all over the place. Life is the great master, the great teacher. But someone has to sign up for the course. The curriculum's all set. It's been around for quite a while, from beginningless time. Okay, So self-knowing, to begin with, is something that uh, we can understand in a conventional way. It's me getting to know more about me. Uh, it can be put into words. 
uh, notions about herself. I thought, I, oh, I see, I was so stuck on being an oral surgeon. I needed, my ego felt insecure, and then I got my degree, and now I'm, I feel so much better, uh, and I don't like anything that threatens that, and so forth. And this loosened it up. But you could learn that in psychotherapy. You can learn it just by being an observant person uh, and living your life uh, in good psychotherapy, which I would say overlaps at the beginning a lot with what can be learned by paying attention to yourself. And there's a separation. Uh, to begin with, we're very separate. There's, there's self-knowing. There's a self, a me, a yogi, an observer who's learning about all these things. Inevitably, we have to start there. We start that way. And the Buddha is uh, a, a magnificent teacher. Uh, attachments are taken away gradually until more and more refined ones have to go. You're allowed certain coarse ones. So if we were to say, you all have to be free of the ego now, it would be the end of the retreat. <laughs> so of course the ego is practicing. The ego is camouflage as a yogi. <laughs> and that energy is the best we can do right now. We, we've come here, this is going to make me a better person, I'll be free, I, 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 me, me, me. So it did help the dentist. A lot of that was uh, his story improved, the story of me and my life, starring the dentist. Okay, and, and me and mine and you and yours, we all have this ongoing epic, okay, in which we do everything. We star in it, we wrote it, we directed it, uh, we sell popcorn in the theater, uh, everything. So, okay. Um, so he Im improved that, but uh, so self-knowing at first is commonsensical, and I think uh, conventional, I don't mean in a derogatory way. We understand. It means you learn something about yourself. You had an image of yourself, and you see, that's not true. I'm much more selfish than I realized. And people do it, and you, on a retreat, you may learn a lot about your psyche. And some of it may be very helpful. I realize why I, I had that problem with my son. And it's be, oh, I see. I was so stubborn. I was tired, and I didn't. And then that, when you come home, you might be a little bit more understanding of your child. Whatever it is, so they're useful uh, kinds of under insights that come here from, and they're put in words and they're characterizations, and so in that sense you find out who you are, more about who, who you are. But as the practice deepens, self-knowing becomes, you find out who you aren't, and you aren't any of it. Sorry. Uh, if some of this is crazy to those of you who are new, Bear with me, I'm planting seeds. I don't, you may not know what I'm talking about. Um, but as you look carefully at what is called the mind, at the self, uh, even without any teaching that of not-self, no-self, emptiness, and so forth, um, it's hard to find anything that, uh, that is stable. Not hard to find, impossible. Everything is coming and going. There's nothing you can point to and say, that's me. The next moment is something that's the opposite of it. And it keeps changing. Change, it's a process. We're not a thing. And awareness, our practice, and this will become very clear tomorrow, I hope, we're going to be observing this flow of all these events that come in through the sense doors that 
we identify with and then we define ourselves by our experience. If sadness comes through the mind, I'm, a sa I'm sad. If happiness comes through the mind, I'm happy. Uh, the practice is, gonna, is, is more going to be to uh, be mindful of it, to observe it without adding anything to it, to observe it exactly as it is. What we do is we identify with the stuff of our mind and then that defines us. We are defined by our experience and that feeds this sense of me, which is the root cause of suffering, covering a lot. Um, with practice, we find out that no matter how the mind presents itself, this is who you are, it's an image, it's a notion, it's an idea, it's a picture, it's in words. How could it be you? It's a characterization of you. Uh, you're not an object. Uh, and it's like uh, thinking that a photograph of you is you. It's a representation of you. And the mind has many representations of ourselves, which we then believe in and try, we try to touch up that photograph, like when you graduate. You know, professional photographers, somehow everyone looks rosy-cheeked and healthy, and then it's on your parents' piano and in your wallet or whatever. Uh, but that's not, but if you look at yourself as you go through 24 hours, it's not exactly that. Okay. So more and more as a, we, we start to discover that in fact who we are is awareness itself. Because if, if you can be aware of something, then it's outside yourself, it's, a, it's a separate. Uh, and so as you more and more watch everything come and go, come and go, come and go, it's like you saw yourself off a limb. Well, what's left? There's a quality in the mind of knowing. It's what, and that quality is what Michael was getting at last night, the beginnings of even just a few moments of mindfulness. It's a kind of intelligence. When it opens up and becomes very, very deep, and it does by practice, it's sometimes called, enlightenment is sometimes called the great silence. This awareness is sometimes called the silent mind. In Zen, they'll call it no mind, meaning the thinking has subsided. You're no longer identified with the productions of your mind as being who you are. Those are who you think you are. And as that all is, you watch it arise and pass away, arise and pass away, arise and pass away. It falls away, and then you, you are what's left, which is presence, awareness. And there's seeing, but it's a seeing energy. There's no separate, at this point, poor ego is out of a job. Because there's just seeing energy. There's no one who's doing the seeing. And this may sound, uh, well, that'll never happen to me. If you think it's going to be years away before you ever taste that, the ego is rejoicing at this moment. <laughs> it's like, great, this person is never going to do this stuff. Sometime down, the, further down the pike, you know, when I get it all together, then I'm going to, you know, great, I thought I was in trouble. <laughs> but if you really just take it moment by moment and work with what's there, which is what our practice is, just take life as it comes in this moment, uh, now by now by now by now by now. It keeps being like that. So it turns out that when Ajahn Chah and some of the teachers in the forest tradition say, be that which knows. So the real Buddha is that. 
It's that in us which knows. A Buddha is someone who fully is that. There's no more clinging or grasping anymore. I'm not saying to aim for that. But that's the refuge. The true, in other words, you have the only real refuge is inside yourself. It's our true home. And uh, anywhere else can be on the way and can be helpful. But if you drop anchor there, that's where you're stuck. It won't go, be, it won't go past that. And that's why the, the tremendous, there are so many ancient parables about uh, treasure buried under your house and you're running around thinking you're poor, looking for money, uh, uh, thinking you're a beggar and when you really are uh, the son of a king and a queen. And what it's saying is there's, and this is one of the meanings of ignorance in the Buddha's usage. We're ignorance of the tremendous potential that each one of us has. And it's way beyond psychological fulfillment, which is good too. Way beyond it. And that's where we go into the silent mind, awareness, it's called original mind, true mind, true nature, Buddha nature, awakening, the great silence. They're all words. I don't know if any of them are all that convincing, but I like original mind or true mind because it's like you get through all the representations that we thought, which we thought, this is who I am. And as they fall away, they don't stand up in the light of observation. They don't stand up. They're not that solid. They arise and pass away. And as uh, more and more you're left with awareness. And then the practice becomes be that awareness. And it's not that far off. Those instructions, as soon as you start tasting a little bit of silence, and the mind becomes a little bit more calm and settled. Be that, rest in that awareness. And more and more the practice becomes to rest in the awareness, to be the awareness. Okay, now, if the oral surgeon is stuck around, he could have gone way beyond oral surgery. But he left. Okay, but do you see the difference between psychological help, which is very, very useful, and not to be underestimated, because I think sometimes what happens is people go express, go right to some deep awakening without taking care of kindergarten. And they, they just trip over unfinished business, dark areas that have not been dealt with. And that may be why people who are supposedly enlightened or have very deep practices uh, disappoint us sometimes by doing very cruel or harsh or stupid things. No one's expecting our, us to be perfect in terms of personality. That's impossible. The personality can never be perfect. I don't know if you've accepted that yet. <laughs> you can keep fixing it. It's a losing battle. You know, it's just it's like quicksand. You're really trying to have a, what, a perfect, per be the perfect person? It doesn't work. This is somewhere else. We're pointing somewhere else. That awareness, uh, which is more available than you might think, and sooner than you might think, Whatever we go through during the day, as we bring mindfulness to it, it could be the most humble activity. Ordinariness uh, can become really contribute to this letting go and 
more and more unfolding. Not only that, it enables us to, we keep hearing about now, now, be here now, and uh, we have to make that clear. What's, so, what's the big deal about now? Um, one of the uh, important aspects of now, and it goes way beyond this, but it's not separate from it, is that very ordinary things can become tremendously fulfilling. Just, just something, just drinking a glass of water when you're thirsty. And it always, it's not it that the water has changed, is that we've changed. And when we're fully present, all kinds of, we're more alive. Being fully in the moment, being non-reactive, being fully in the moment and receiving. Remember we used that image of receiving the breath? I'm happy that it helped some of you to just allow the breath in. Well, we're gonna, tomorrow we're going to learn how to uh, extend it, that it's to receive all of our experience, learn how to allow our experience to be what it is and to receive it. Okay. Um, so that in the process of ordinariness coming to life, because we've come to life, in other words, life is real when we become real. Uh, let me, uh, in the amount of, let me uh, illustrate this as a, an old Jewish spiritual story, which my grandmother told me, which one of my favorites. Um, there was someone called Buncher Schweig, which might be translated Buncher the Quiet One. Uh, he lived a very quiet life. He had an unimportant job. He was extremely kind and generous and lived out his days always being helpful, always being kind. Uh, and just ordinary in that, in that sense. And then as these stories very often go, of course he goes to heaven. And then God says, Buncha, you are a wonderful human being. You were just very kind and very loving and very generous and always helping people. You can now have anything you want. And poor Buncha uh, scratches his head and he, he doesn't know what to ask. He says, I can't think of anything. So, God comes back a little bit later and says, Buncha, for goodness sakes, you're a great human being. You're wonderful. You're living exactly what I would hope all human beings would uh, hope they would live like you. Uh, you can now, finally, you can have whatever you want. And again, he can't come up with anything. Well, as you know, usually it's the third time for some reason. <laughs> so the third time, he said, so Buncha says, okay, okay. And he gets very reflective. And he says, can you see to it that I have a cup of coffee and a bagel every morning? <laughs> That's it. <laughs> What's the big deal? Just go to a coffee shop and get a cup of coffee. You know, we're so glutted with stuff. Um, there's so much to be learned here, and often uh, we're learning how to live, and my hope is that what a tiny contribution being here for seven days makes on this art of living, and you learn how to live by living, and often it's by unlearning what needs to be unlearned by seeing it. This is not working. This is not beneficial to myself or others. Um, <clears throat> and outside world, so-called, where we go back to, um, is very, very different. And the mind that's been cultivated and trained there uh, for example, one of the main, in the groups, yesterday and today, uh, one of the main things said was, my mind is just so scattered, I can hardly be with the breath. 
again and again and again. Um, that's always been so for beginning yogis, including even at the time of the Buddha. But if the Buddha were alive today and took a look at multitasking, you know, uh, for example, now I never know. I'm walking down the street and I hear someone talking. I, I think it, they're talking to themselves, you know, <laughs> or they want to talk to me. I turn around, it's neither. It's a cell phone. Or people are driving with a cell phone and a cup of coffee and a wheel and, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, uh, you know, it's, we're multitasking, okay? And the computer is spewing forth information. You know, we're spending hours reading uh, stuff. I don't know. And then we turn on the news, which is my favorite one. And I, I watch CNN and there's, a, is it called Sprawl? <laughs> sprawl or Crawl? One of, it's called something. Let's say you're watching the news and something interesting is going on. You're finding out about what's going on in the Middle East. But in the meantime, there's this other stuff. It's telling you about Michael Jackson. It's going on about, you know, it's just, and you're up here. If the, if the news falters for like a second and it's not really exciting, you go down to the, you know, uh, you know, and then why are you going up there? But then, then it, and then a commercial comes on and it gets cut off, and you didn't get to hear the whole, the whole crawl. And then sometimes, in the upper corner, they'll have one thing, another place, you know, a general speaking from one part of Iraq, and a general in another part, and the crawl going on, and then that collapses, and then there's a commercial. And then that mind comes here and is going to follow the breath. <laughs> so let's be patient with ourselves. Let's end up with a bunch of schweig. Uh, I think it, that's, uh, a, a, to me, a very, very wonderful teaching. And it's not to try and impersonate him. It's to start appreciating all the many wonderful things that exist because we're alive. A few moments of silence, please. May we continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. May such clear, direct seeing free us. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.